Well, hello, and welcome to... Hey! All you zombies! Um, my name is Chris Abel. I'm your uh, slightly infected host, but thankfully mm. you can't pick it from me. And uh, uh, joining me, as always, is the uh, master of time and space, the great sorcerer, Richard Crowley. <laughs> well, I think I know why you're calling me that. You yeah. may not have called me that a week or so ago. No, and, and this is amazing. <laughs> I want to talk about it because you shocked a lot of people, and I think in a really fantastic way. And I've got the, 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 the photos, of course, to prove it. Let's pull it up here. This is great. I thought this was amazing. So what are we looking at here? This You've got a silver face. You're uh, yeah. a sorcerer. Yeah, that was uh, Canada AM um, asked me to go with the host of the show, Bev Thompson and Marcy Ian, to Malabar in Toronto mm -hmm. and have a look and see what kind of costumes you know we might want to wear on the show. And they filmed that segment. And... You know, you go walk walk into this place, and it's a it, it's been there forever, and they typically uh, do a huge trade at Halloween and you know any sort of dress up event. But they also supply costumes for operas and theater and that kind of thing as well. So a lot of the costumes are way more elaborate than you might find at any other kind of uh, you know costume shop. So I found this one. And I found a, a couple. I knew that I wanted to be some kind of like space wizard. I didn't really have a plan. I just thought I'd see what was there. And then this came up and I loved it. It's a, I, I guess it's a Merlin costume. It was originally meant uh, for an opera. I was, I was told that. Uh, but it weighed 1,400 pounds because what <laughs> I was told, <laughs> what I was told is that um, unlike film costumes, which you can actually get away with unfinished, you know, like they, they, they often don't do the finer details. On stage, uh, the costumes are very complete, and this thing is kind of an undergarment, uh, a long undergarment, and then there's this cape slash robe, and then the hat. And I understand now why people don't wear tall, pointed hats anymore, because this <laughs> felt like having my head pinched by lobster for the entire time I was wearing it. Very uncomfortable. But uh, mm -hmm. the robe itself was uh, very ornate, uh, purple, lots of gold lame, which, as an Elvis fan, always appeals to me. And uh, I painted my face silver only because I could. There was no right. real plan behind it. I, I could do it, and I did it. And this picture was taken in the green room by Dave Alexander from Rumork Magazine, and he posted it online as the return of the amazing Krauskin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks great. I mean, you teased everybody with a photo of yourself just with the silver paint. Yeah. Um, and even then, I don't think people quite expected that they're going to see this. Beautiful. And and as you say, just highly detailed. And it makes such a big difference. Yeah. In so many television shows, they try to do a Halloween special, and it looks like they've got costumes from Kmart. Um, <laughs> you know, this is this is what you need to do if you work in television. People at yeah. home expect it to be very uh, ornate and theatrical. It looks just fantastic. Well, it was fun. It was fun. I mean, I'm glad. I don't know how much more I could have worn it. I only had it on for <laughs> probably about an hour and a half. I'm not sure I could have worn it. Oh, there you go. There's another one, yeah. That was on set. Yeah. The, the lighting was cool because they built a little Halloween set for us. And, of course, you know, it's TV, so it's got to be lit, but you still want to have this kind of spooky atmosphere. So uh, it was lit from above, of course, because it has to be. But all along the floor uh, underneath us were these red, blue, green, and purple lights. And that's what really was illuminating us and giving us that crazy glow. And I think also having my face, uh, my face painted that, uh, metallic silver color also literally made it glow a little bit more, make it look a little bit more unearthly than usual. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's sort of the the showbiz magic. These are all the yeah. techniques that allow you to create uh, things that that are just delightful. And there's uh, another shot here of you guys in Malabar. Um, I know Malabar well. <clears throat> I actually have an account there. <laughs> and, uh, grabbed a lot of costumes. Um, <laughs> Why am I not but, surprised uh, by that? I don't think most people know. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. They know me there. I go in and we have right. lots of conversations. Right. But they um, they are also the place that did all the costumes for SCTV. So if you're a big fan of John really? Kerry, Gene Levy, really, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that's sitting on the racks there is actual stuff from SCTV. They, a Canadian uh, pro, uh, television show did not have the budget. They rented yeah. a lot of their costumes off the rack there. So there is a lot of uh, stuff there that was worn 
by the the gang at SCTV. Like so you could probably find the Schmengi brothers costumes in there, for probably, instance. Yeah, and Floyd maybe. Yeah, yeah. It, chances are, if you're going in and you're asking for a Dracula costume and you're really tall, right. then you could probably get the Count Floyd one that uh, that was worn. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I I was you know I went for something a little different. I wanted uh, I I went in with the idea of a robe. My original idea was to go as uh, Karnak. Remember Karnak from Johnny Carson? Yeah. Where he would hold the envelope up to his head, and the answer is, you know, that he... Uh, so I was going to do that originally. And my, my so my original idea was to get that big sort of, you know, very elaborate kind of uh, hat that he wore, and then wear, like, an incredibly, like, gold lame, like an incredibly kind of tacky lounge singer kind of outfit underneath it. And then I started seeing all the robes and stuff, and my, my idea changed a little bit. Yeah, I mean, once you walk in, you see the the selection that they have. It's just fantastic. There's all sorts of stuff. Just it's worth just trying on. It sure uh, it is. Good for you because I mean, you know, in the past, Canadam has been kind of hesitant to do that kind of costumey stuff. You are right. a fun personality, so clearly they thought, okay, with you, they can sort of make it happen. I find <laughs> a lot of people they're a little hesitant. They sort of feel like it's kind of a, a childish thing to do, but uh, no, I think it really worked very well. Well, it was fun, you know. I, listen, I uh, I haven't dressed up for years, years and years and years. Uh, the last time I dressed up in a really elaborate way was, uh, like, it might have been in the 1990s somewhere, and I dressed up as dead Elvis. And so I had uh, <laughs> a, the very elaborate Elvis hair, uh, a, a, a suit, and then one of those skeleton suits underneath, and then Elvis pins and things. Uh, but then I was made up like a zombie. And it was uh, it was an effective costume, but it was one that didn't hold up very well over the course of the night. And <laughs> so by the end of the night, you know, a lot of my skin had fallen off, and the wig got really hot, so I took it off. So the costume didn't uh, hold up very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, zombies. Speaking of zombies, and I think I have to mention this isn't one of my topics, but uh, oh my god, did you see The Walking Dead the other night? Yeah. Oh. I made sure I made sure to walk it uh, to watch it because I mean partly I knew you were you were going to want to talk about it and also that these days there's so many internet trolls just yeah. waiting to try to ruin uh, the big surprises that you kind of have to see it. Yeah. Time. Well, here's the thing. Like I, uh, so many because uh, I was I, I as soon as the the show started to become something a little bit different than episodes in the past. Like, once I realized it was going to be kind of one of these event kind of episodes, I grabbed my iPad and I was looking, you know, on Twitter and Facebook to see what things people were saying about it. And I didn't find so much that it was trolls that were trying to ruin it for you. It was just people going, oh, my God, can you believe what's happening? I can't believe they're doing this. This is the greatest hour of TV possibly ever. And you know what? Man, this uh, I... I'm hard-pressed to name a better hour of television this year. I, um, I agree. Yeah. That show took me to places that were unexpected. Uh, they, I mean, here's a spoiler. If you haven't been watching the show or if you didn't see it yet, go like this for a second. Go like this. They killed off two main characters. Uh, you know, this, is, uh, th- this was a show that, that really proved to me uh, that anything can happen on this show, and that there are no kind of rules, there are no limits, you know? And the show has shown us that before a couple of times, but every now and again it just needs to sort of remind you a little bit. And it's funny because that was, we, I watched it on Saturday, or Sunday night, and earlier that day I had hosted uh, an event at the Tiff Bell Lightbox. We screened uh, the movie Hitchcock, and then I talked about it to the audience afterwards. And one of the interesting things in that movie is that it's, a, it's about the, the making. It's about a lot of it's about the making of the movie Psycho. But it's really more about the relationship between Alfred Hitchcock and his wife. It's a terrific movie. Uh, Anthony Hopkins, very likely nominated for an Academy Award, along with uh, Helen Mirren. But uh, having said all that, one of the things about the making of Psycho, and it, it talks uh, extensively about killing off a main character early on into the movie. Just, it had simply never been done before. You didn't take the biggest star in your movie and kill her 30 yeah. minutes in. <laughs> and um, and that's one of the things that made Psycho so remarkably different than, you know, the films that had come before it. Uh, you know, that and that they showed, it was the first big American movie ever to show a toilet flushing. Uh, it was, you know, there was a, a, a great deal more 
uh, implied nudity and violence and things that, that had been witnessed before. But it was this idea that you take Janet Lee, who was a big star at the time, and kill her halfway through, not even halfway through the movie, about a third of the way into the movie. It was outrageous. And that's kind of the spirit, or the spirit of that, I guess, lives on in uh, The Walking Dead. I mean, this show, uh, it, I, I think, is worth keeping up with and watching every week because, you know, while it seems some weeks nothing much happens, then you get an episode like last week where so much happens and, and you, <laughs> you, you, you not only see someone's head get cut in half this way, <laughs> which was mind-blowing, but also two main characters uh, go um, and you get to see uh, the, the sort of the, the very real primal kind of human side of uh, what it is like to be a survivor when people around you aren't surviving. And it's, it's a fascinating show. And it's really well done. It's nicely acted. And, I mean, I just think that it's, uh, it's something that uh, is really, really worth having a look at. Well, the, 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 like what you're describing, that experience, um, I came to Walking Dead first uh, through the comic book. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew people who were just, oh my God, can you believe what's happening? And, and <laughs> you know, pressing comic books in my hands. And so I was already well ahead in terms of what the, the storyline is that the series is right. following. They've made changes. But what, um, what looked worrisome very early on was that as they got into the second series, a lot of characters had survived that did not right. survive in the comic book. So right. We had that whole second season where it became like the talking dead and it started to fall into that typical, you know, television dynamic of worrying about who's sleeping with whom and who's talking to whom, rather than dealing with just the survival. What has happened is, with this season, is they seem to have caught up to the comic book, and that you have people that are dying left, right, and center. It's no longer about people worrying who, who's got a relationship with who. It's, it's about pure survival. Uh, well, just the harrowing decisions you have to make split second, and the tremendous consequences that come from that. I mean, it's just wild. well, the the, the first uh, the first two shows. Well, the first I think three shows uh, were the three most violent hours of television possibly ever. I mean, it just seemed like they were just making up for the kind of inactivity of the second season when it was called The Talking Dead, and people were just you know kind of yeah. moaning about living on that farm and not knowing what to do and they sat around and they discussed it ad nauseum. I, they, they seemed to amp up the action 150% and it was just all about cutting zombies in two. You know, into, and so I was beginning to hope by the, the last week's episode that it would sort of turn around and find a mix between that and the other aspects and it did not disappoint me and I'll tell you that was if you haven't been watching the show uh, I, I'm not sure that it would have as big an effect on you but I still think that the ideas that are in the show you will still find remarkable for a weekly television yeah this is not about blood and gore no. um, although there's a well, lot of it there's, there. Why, there's a lot of there's it. a lot of it but that's not what the show is about uh, I think it's it's you know the thing that's valuable about it is that it does not pull any punches. Yeah. It's talking about a severe state of trying to survive and live, and so you're going to have um, horrifying, harrowing things that are going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that because it's now starting to match that severity of the comic book, the next couple of episodes are going to be really dark. Really? Uh, yes. A lot of people were writing to me and, and saying, you know, wow, that was dark. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> Just wait Hold for on. it. Yes, I mean, you know, uh, everybody's been talking about how there's a really kind of weird feeling about the governor, and there's... Well, the governor is thing. not a trustworthy man. I'll tell you that right now. I haven't read the comic books, but I'll tell you, there's something wrong with that dude. I don't know what it is exactly, but there's something wrong with him. Uh, what happens if it, if it matches the comic books? Robert Kirkland had to deal with, like, two months of people just in sheer outrage writing to him. Some had sworn they would never read the comic book ever again. It's wow. just he delves into some really nasty, nasty stuff. And, and they don't seem to be flinching from it, so it should be really good. I mean, it, you're not going to be able to stop watching the series, uh, and it's just going to... I don't know. It's, it's good stuff. It's hard to say that about such such things that are horrible to watch, but uh, they've captured, I think, the emotion and the thinking behind it really well. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I know all I know is uh, because I'm up very early in the mornings often because I'm on early morning radio and television. So that the the talking of the Walking Dead is about as late as I usually stay up. 
you know, and when it, it ends at eleven, and that's that's pretty much it for me. I watch a few minutes of the news, maybe, and it's you know, uh, and uh, every Monday or every Sunday night, you know, into Monday. Um, I'm finding that I'm having insane dreams these days because it's the the last images that I've had in my head have been of you know people, little kids, t that kid shooting zombies in the head, and I end up dreaming about it. And it's not always good for me, but I still can't stop watching the show. Wow. Yeah. All right. So um, I guess I'll talk um, about this guy today. So today is um, the launch of uh, a video game called Halo Four. And I know you're not into video games, but I, I, I've decided I'm going to talk about this because it's such an interesting review experience. Right. But I think it's something you'll be interested in. You can relate to. Okay. Uh, Halo is considered to be. Um, I think it's it's now worth. Let me check. Is it four billion or three billion dollars <laughs> as an entertainment wow. franchise? Wow. Uh, just yeah, it's it's crazy in terms of the money that it makes. Here we and go. And yet the movie. And yet they couldn't give tickets away for the movie. No, well, it just didn't get made. Apparent, and and there are reasons for it. And I think a lot of that has to do with that you have so many egos involved. It's not right. just the movie studios and Peter Jackson, but Microsoft and the video game guys. A lot of difficulties, and I'm kind of right. tapping into that a little bit today. Um, so it's a three billion dollar franchise, according to Microsoft. It is still considered to be one of the all-time greatest entertainment launches. Um, I wasn't really thrilled to, to sit down and review Halo 4, and there are a number of reasons for it. Uh, the first one is that although it's called 4, it's actually the eighth game in the series. Right. This has been 11 years. You can imagine if you had to sit down and review Transformers 7, and they've been pumping them out once a year. Yeah. It doesn't matter how good the, the movies are. It's more of the same. Of, yeah. yeah, more of the same. Yeah. And we're talking about games here that take about you know 14 to 20 hours to complete, and I've completed them all. So it's, it's a very long process that I've gone through all this. Wow. But on top of that um, is what happened a couple of years ago. The creators of Halo uh, came in and, and gave Microsoft some really bad news. They said that, uh, we're done. We're not going to make any more Halo games. <laughs> and, and for Microsoft, that's, that's pretty traumatic because um, for them, uh, Halo is very important to their Xbox business right. at a time in which everybody's talking about iPads and smartphones and not Windows computers. Right. Xbox is really important to Microsoft. And the top-selling franchise is Halo, and of course, very important to Halo is this guy here, Master Chief. Mm. He's the star. So the guys who created them said to Microsoft, we're not going to make any Halo games. We're, we're done. This one that we're going to do is going to be our last one, Halo 3. And Microsoft, of course, began the negotiation process of saying, well, well, well can we still make Halo games without you guys? And they said, well, here's the deal. You can make other Halo games. They can take place in the same universe, follow other characters. But we're not just going to stop making Halo games. We're actually going to, in this game, kill off Master Chief. <laughs> <laughs> they said, we feel the time has come. We've told the story that we want to tell. And it's necessary for us to you know, end it with his death. Right. Um, and uh, that was a really traumatic process. One day we may get the full candid story of what happened behind the scenes. But for us as members of the press, it became a very interesting time in doing interviews. Right. Um, in talking to the guys at Bungie, they made it clear to me, uh, look, you know, we don't know. There might be other Halo games, but you're never going to play as Master Chief again. That's final. And when I finally got my hands on the game and I played it, you get to the end of Halo 3, and there's this elaborate funeral. There's a memorial, Crimson Sunset. All the characters sort of gathered around, looking off into the distance, people crying, having memories, that kind of thing. They built up this beautiful analogy where here you have Master Chief, representative of not just him as a soldier, but all soldiers. Right, a lot of the right. guys who work on the games, they know people who are in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so they, they had this beautiful kind of poetry where they revealed at the end of this guy's life that although he was known by his rank, Master Chief in life, in death they revealed that his real name was John. And it was all about, you know, how every soldier's story has to be about death because being a soldier means giving up your life for your country right. and that kind of thing. Beautiful. Run credits. <laughs> After the credits, there's a quick little epilogue. And you know that this is something that Microsoft must have gone to great lengths to negotiate. And that's when it's revealed that he's not 100% dead. He's only 99.9% uh, .9 dead. Well, that seems pretty dead to me. 
yeah, well, he's, he's, he's left in a comatose state, drifting in outer space, uh, where statistically it's unlikely anybody will ever find him. And I guess it's right. one of those things where maybe if the creators change their mind, they might come back, you know. Who knows? They're going off to try to do other games, and those games right. sometimes may not be received well. So the years pass. It's been a couple of years, and Microsoft has dutifully released some other Halo games. They didn't get the blockbuster sales numbers that they wanted. Right. And sure enough, earlier this year, they announced... Halo 4. <laughs> and he's back. And he's back. And he's back. And they had gone out and they hired another company to come in and make that Halo game. So for me, uh, I didn't really, I wasn't too eager to review this game because it was the eighth one in the series. I was already right. kind of sick of playing this guy. And but it feels, frankly, to me, even as a non-player, like a bit of a cheat. Yes. You're bringing a character back who's 99.9% .9 dead after a couple of games don't do very well, and then all of a sudden you, you know you need to inject some life into it. That seems like uh, you know I don't know. Uh, it just the idea of, of uh, you know J.R. Ewing, uh, the whole thing being a dream at the end of Dallas or whatever the hell that was. You know all that. It just seems like a contrivance uh, strictly geared to making money. Well, and true, and I'm very sentimental. I feel that, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about respecting the rights of artists. Right. These guys, that's what they wanted. That was their wish. They wanted it to end. They wanted to give them a solid ending, and I think right. they were trying to avoid someone exploiting their characters and their work. And, right. You know, here's Microsoft who's made billions of dollars off of these guys. You would think that they'd be willing to kind of respect it. It's tough, I know, because there hasn't been anything else to kind of take its place on the Xbox system, but... Right. So I, you know, had that sentimental feeling. I, I wasn't spending a lot of time even learning about the game as they were trying to promote it or do interviews or stuff like that. I felt I owe it to the creators. I'm not going to, you know, embrace this too easily. The game showed up. I felt I have a job to do. I should plug it in and I should play it. And that's when I, I realized I had a real problem. Mm. The game is fantastic. Yeah. Not yeah, only fantastic, I... it is one of the best in the entire series. It is the sequel that we never got. It is just, you know, it's like really bad news for the guys who created this. The guys who were hired to come in uh, did a phenomenal bang-up job. It's just... And I've I... had... I kind of thought the story was going that way. I was yeah. waiting for the for the turn, you know, but... Yeah. Uh, and that's been tough. And, and it's hard because, of course, my job is to the audience, and I've written a review that confirms to everybody this, you know, if you've been like me and you've played all seven games and you're starting to think whether it's even worthwhile, this will make it all worth, uh, make it up to you because it really is a, a fantastic... For the first time, it's a well-balanced story. They've got uh, emotional weight there. It's, uh, you know, it's not, there's not a grind. They're so inventive and creative in terms of introducing new vehicles and scenarios and experiences. And There's even an argument here that rather than do what the creators want to do, which was to make it a trilogy where you have a character that goes through an arc and ends. Right. They can turn this guy into James Bond, and he can have an unlimited number of adventures that are all thrilling right. and that kind of thing. So it's it's rough. It's just I don't want big money to win. <laughs> I don't want corporate. To, you know, it's like at the end of the yeah. day, are you kidding me? No, you know. Well, you know, I mean, I got to tell you that the new James Bond movie opens on Friday. It's the twenty-third official one. There's been a couple of others. The one where Sean Connery came back, you know, and there was a, a Casino Royale, you know, with David Niven a hundred years ago. Um, and you know, twenty-three years in, or twenty-three movies in, you know, you can you can boundlessly expect that there will be some kind of you know lack of quality or dip in quality. But I got to tell you, you know. Um, the 23rd movie may be the best of the bunch. Uh, Skyfall is awesome. And it's awesome for any number of reasons. I mean, Daniel Craig is, is good James Bond. He's a solid, solid choice for James Bond. But it's Sam Mendes, the director. So they finally started bringing in, you know, like, you know, I, I hate to sound this way, but real directors. Not Like, there's a lot of journeyman directors out there who can take a big budget like Martin Campbell, guys like that, can take a big budget, they will deliver an exciting-looking movie, they will bring it in on time, they won't spend too much money, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, those guys have been the people that have been entrusted with the Bond legacy, by and large, for the last 50 years, a lot of them. Uh, but this one, they brought a, a real director in. Uh, they have a bad guy in the form of Harvey Bardem, who is beyond bad. He is, he is, he is, 
He's not out to get one million dollars from people. Uh, he's not out to take over the world. He's after something that's very personal. Is that he's after revenge? I'm not going to tell you against who. He's after revenge, and uh, so it's personal and it's primal and it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. And uh, this is the first James Bond movie, to my mind, that is really about something more than just someone, a bad guy, wanting to take over the world and James Bond having to stop him and, you know, having martinis along the way. This has overarching themes about mortality and, and old versus new and outliving your usefulness and all those kind of things. But it's not just like an idea that's thrown into the wind and is sort of allowed to flop around a little bit like it is, you know, because action movies often have themes like this. This is a, a movie that that theme is thoroughly ingrained into every frame of the movie so that even the action scenes have themes in them, within them. And the opening montage which, of course, you know, the famous James Bond opening montage with the naked painted women and, the, you know, right, yeah. all that stuff. Even that uh, signals uh, that it is a clash of old versus new. You've got the Adele song, which is obviously a, 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 new, a, a new James Bond song, but it sounds like an homage to the past, yet it looks to the future because it's new and it's fresh sounding. So every frame of this movie is about examining what has come before, but looking to the future. So it can be done, I guess is my point, is that it can be done that new life can be breathed into franchises that may have appeared to uh, gone a little stagnant. Yeah, and it's, it's I guess my, my instinct is that I want to be protective right. of this kind of stuff because the traditional stories that you bring in large corporations and they just exploit this stuff yeah. and we end up getting, you know, baby uh, pavlum served to us. Yeah. But we're at a point now where... You know, Disney has done fantastic stuff with the Marvel properties. Uh, they've just bought out Lucasfilm, and I... I I'm not I, unhappy about that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what to feel about it. It's like, I, I'd rather not somebody take over Indiana Jones, but um, maybe it's not something we should be worried about. There, you know, there seems to be this trend of, of, of allowing these studios and corporations to take on these brands, and, and as long as they're matching it up with people who are really competent then we might get fantastic stuff out of it. But it, it's really confusing. Well, Tron and John Carter don't inspire a lot of confidence in you in terms of what Disney has released in the past few years in terms of big blockbustery kind of uh, action, adventure, science fiction movies. But their revitalization of the Muppets, brilliant, worked really well. Uh, what they do with Pixar works really well. Um, you know, the, the, what they've done with Marvel, I mean, the Avengers movie was very entertaining and has become one of the world's biggest, or one of the history's biggest selling movies. So, I mean, they don't bugger it up. They're, they're a good example of a corporation that doesn't bugger it up. Yeah. John Carter was a misstep. Tron was a mis, was misstep-ish, you know. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not overly concerned. I mean, I don't think that they can do a worse job than Lucas himself did with the last three. No, I, I agree. I, I sort of, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if I really want more Star Wars films as being someone who was a fan of it in kids, but yeah. I guess why not? You know, you, you can't... Well, you, I'm uh, not sure that these movies are for us. No. You know, the, the new ones will be, uh, if they're successful and if they do what they're meant to do, will be for a generation, will be for the, the kids that were our age when we first saw... The original movie <clears throat> for 14 and 15 year olds now so we'll see maybe maybe that will be their uh, you know the, the, those will become movies that become very important to them um, well it's election day it is it is election day and uh, you know there's a there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about um, you know along here I have uh, some photographs this uh, you know, there's nothing by there's nothing partisan about what I'm uh, putting up here. I just love this. What me worry? I'm voting mad. Alfred E. Newman for president. I like that. Um, I, uh, I I searched out a number of these today, and um, let me just have a look here. If there's an oh yeah, this one I liked as well. John Lennon for president. Yeah. 
it's very cool. And autographed by David Peel on the side there. So, uh, but you know, beyond that, let me just see. Actually, you know what? There's another cool one here. This one's a bit more. <laughs> this one's a bit more uh, Godzilla and Mothra. It's a bit more uh, topical, I guess. But anyway, that's uh, that's all happening today. So, who's going to win? You know, we're we're as we sit here recording this, it's a uh, quarter to three in the afternoon. We won't know anything probably for another five or six hours, and it's possible that we won't know. Uh, because the race looks like it's going to be kind of tight, that we won't know anything for maybe 10 hours. But if you're someone who uh, uh, likes to predict things, there's a lot of ways that you can kind of predict it. And they're strange. <clears throat> they're unusual. They don't seem like they should work, but they a lot of these things are on butt to tape have a really high percentage of uh, our high success percentage. So there is a, a, a newly discovered Academy Awards Golden Globes rule and a connection to the presidential elections. Um, over the past 50 years, there have only been two exceptions where a Democrat has won the White House when the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture Drama and the Oscar for Best Picture have not gone to the same film. When the same film uh, wins both honors, a Republican wins. So this year, The Descendants won Best Motion Picture Drama at the Globes, and The Artist won the Oscars Best Picture, which means that Obama is going to win tonight. Um, the, uh, it, the, this has been uh, documented by CNN's Outfront, who admit that they have too much time on their hands uh, when they're looking into this kind of thing. Uh, there are other wacky ways of uh, predicting this. Every year, or every election year, uh, for the past number of years, the Chia people have put out Chia pets in the shape of the candidates. And so this year, of course, there's an Obama Chia planter and a Mitt Romney Chia planter. Well, the Mitt Romney Chia planter has sold 37.1%. Uh, and the leaving 62.1 for uh, the Obama. And the Chia uh, pet planter has been a good indicator of who's going to win over the last few elections. Um, the uh, CNN has reported that Halloween mask sales have accurately predicted the winner of every U.S. presidential election since 1980. This method was upheld again in 2004 and once again in 20 th or 2008. Uh, so we're looking here now at 60% to 40% of Obama over uh, Mitt Romney. Um, so it, you know all the all the the indicators seem to be pointing to Obama. Uh, Obama. Uh, there is a really weird one: the Olympics connection. Oh, so now almost every single time the Summer Olympics were hosted in a country that had previously won a housing bid, the incumbent party won the popular vote in that election. And since London hosted the Olympics back in 1908 and then won the bid to host in 1944, it's a good bet that Obama will win the election because of this weird uh, kind of... Uh, um, uh, Olympics connection. What that also means, though, is either a Republican or third-party candidate will win in 2016 after Brazil hosts its first ever Summer Olympics. So, you know, Mr. Kane, Mr. Palin, Mr. Trump, they can get ready to uh, to run. Uh, but it's not, you know, a complete shutout for Mitt Romney, uh, at least not according to Gnocchi, the election-predicting pet squirrel from South Carolina. Well, there you go. Yeah, and uh, now he has two bowls in front of him uh, filled with, with nuts, and one is labeled Obama, <laughs> one is labeled Mitt Romney, and he has uh, eaten nine of the Mitt Romney nuts versus five from the Obama bowl. And Gnocchi uh, correctly picked Obama to win in 2008. Wow. So, you know, if you're looking to, if you're looking to if you're in Vegas watching us right now and you're looking to uh, lay down a bet, that's all the information perhaps you need right there. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Well, you know, I guess in some ways uh, these are all indicators of how other people sort of feel politically. You know, that um, right. if people are buying masks, then they're, they're you know, doing so because of their political leanings. But it's interesting because that would also indicate that the decision is made well in advance. 
this past week, there's been a lot of last minutes or campaigning, a lot of strategy, a lot of thinking of electoral votes. But all of those indicators that you've been talking about would seem to, to say that the decision was already made weeks and months ago. Well, except for Gnocchi. It's already there. Gnocchi, I don't think, is a long-range planner. Gnocchi, the nut-eating squirrel. I don't think plans uh, a long-term advance, but I think you're right about that. I think that what could be uh, an indicator and could have changed things uh, a fair amount this year is uh, Sandy blowing through the United States uh, and Chris Christie, you know, one of the staunchest Republican governors out there, mm. uh, coming out and saying, you know, listen, Obama did it right. He he got things. He did it. He did it the right way for me. So I mean, it's not going to. Uh, convince, I don't think, any hardcore Republicans to all of a sudden go, well, you know, i got to vote for Obama. But there's a lot of independents out there. There's a lot of undeclared people. So um, they're the ones that might, uh, that, that might vote. Now, you know, New York State has typically been uh, a, a Democratic stronghold, so it'll be interesting to see with the difficulties of getting around and, you know, the, the, the recent events and tragic events that have happened there if it keeps people away from the polls because of the difficulties just logistically of, of voting this year. Right. Well, I, I think I have a, another indicator we can take a look at. Mm. And I thought because of the election that uh, this would be a, a good chance for me to talk about a different topic, okay. which is... I noticed while I was sitting at News Talk 1010, and yes. I going to do my piece, and they had all the news up there, I can see the constant comparison of footage between Barack Obama... And Mitt Romney, and it was again and again. And this is the the what I'm talking about is the imagery that you're seeing now as we're leading up to today's election. Right. And I noticed that in every shot and every image that I saw, Mitt Romney is wearing a necktie, whereas right. Barack Obama is not. Right. Uh, and I thought that that was kind of an interesting thing, and also a, a good chance for me to explain a comment I made a couple of episodes, which is that I've never worn a necktie. Yeah, that's and right. Never will. And uh, I know we've talked about personal quirks uh, mm -hmm. earlier, and uh, everybody has them. <laughs> oh, listen, I yeah, listen, I know. I'm a festering <laughs> stew of personal quirks, but uh... so I, I thought I'd kind of explain why um, that's the case for me, and uh, you know, uh, I'll I'll try to keep it as as simple as I can, even okay. though these things tend to be very uh, complex and deep and psychological. Is it is it a superstition? Is it like a hangman's noose? No, no something like that. You know? I don't think it's like that, but I think that these kind of things are related. There may be the same machinations that are kind of involved. But I will say that um, while there was a, a, a little boy living in, in is it Bridgewater, Nova Scotia? Uh, well, that's I was born in Bridgewater, but I was I, I grew up in Liverpool. But in just, Liverpool, you know, yeah. Um, and that that boy was probably the tallest in his class. Uh, yeah, well, it, it happened. Uh, it happened one summer that I became the tallest in the class by about a foot and a half. But so yes, by yeah. about a foot and a half. And, yeah, and, I grew you know, a lot in one in one week, literally. And I can kind of understand, you know, the the awkwardness that mm -hmm. happens with that. Uh, here in Toronto, uh, in the the Jane and Finch area, uh, which is where I was born and grew up, right. um, I was the shortest kid in my class. Uh, I, I didn't gain my current height until much later. Right. And I want to be clear, when I say the shortest kid, I mean the girls were taller than me. Uh, wow. Uh, and not just that, but and I had that experience, I didn't realize it, it wasn't something that was apparent to me, but it became apparent to all the other kids because one by one they would come up to me and measure themselves and right. proclaim, I'm bigger than you. Yeah. All right. the girls. But the word got out and all the kids in the grade lower than me also measured themselves, and I was shorter than them. So I was a very, very, very small boy, right. um, nerdy boy, right. living in a, a neighborhood of rough finances, lots of families struggling to try to get by, lots of immigration, lots of racial tension. So I'm this little nerdy white boy <laughs> living in a neighborhood where you have lots of people that are suffering from alcoholism, sexual assault, and all sorts of issues. And that stuff tends to trickle down on the smallest kid. So I was like, if you had issues you needed to work out on, I was the kid that you ended up picking on. This is a horrible story. It's a horrible I, story. I, yeah. I uh, thought it would be like, I saw Santa Claus wearing his uh, tie one time and it scared me. You know, this is... <laughs> This is going no. in much darker places than I expected. Oh, so from, from age five, you know, all the way... Chris has frozen. 
This is uh, like Alfred Hitchcock talks about quite often uh, in the movie Hitch. It's building suspense. So he's talking about being a young boy in a rough neighborhood. And just when the going, just when the story becomes exciting, it stops. <laughs> and I don't know whether he's coming back. Hi, this is Chris. As Richard has explained, it was at this point in our show that I lost connection to the Google Plus servers. Thankfully, after a few minutes, I came back. Budweiser people had no knowledge or uh, of the use or portrayal of Budweiser before or during the film's production and were not contacted by the studio. The, I'm just filling them in on a story while we we're waiting for you to come back. Yeah, I'm but, trying about, to figure out what's going on with my technical difficulties. It right. might be um, my router, my internet access, because I don't think it's my laptop and I don't think no. it's Google. Well, we're, we're, uh, I'm going to let some suspense build with your story. I, was, I explained how it was like Hitchcock there for a while, so we got to a very exciting part of the story. Now we're taking a quick break. So what's happened, anyways, Anheuser-Busch and Stoli want uh, the movie in its digital versions and DVD and what it's shown on television to have their products obscured so they don't want to be connected with Denzel Washington's bad behavior in the film. It's interesting because... You have to keep in mind, they didn't pay to have their products placed in this movie. And uh, the position of the studio, which is Paramount, now they, this is not an official position because they haven't actually uh, uh, responded officially, but it is, uh, been, it, it, there, there's precedent for this, is that you can do pretty much whatever you want with a product in the film. So if you have an alcoholic character and you show him drinking Budweiser, there's very little that Budweiser can do about it. So it's going to be an interesting story to follow uh, to see whether or not Budweiser and Stoli are successful in uh, sort of doing some revisionism in, in this movie. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think that their complaints are going to add up to much. I can see while they're doing it. Um, you know, the uh, Anheuser-Busch people said, we would never condone the misuse of our products and have a long history of promoting responsible drinking and preventing drunk driving. Well, of course you do. You know, uh, of course you do. And everyone sort of uh, will buy into that a little bit. Whether or not you can uh, change uh, the content of this movie is, uh, is another thing in its uh, entirety. So, anyway, that's, uh, that's a, a story that I've been following a little bit, and I'm curious to see how that's going to uh, end up. Back to you, Chris Abel. When we <laughs> well, left, you were a young boy growing up in a rough neighborhood. And, and getting picked on by everybody because around. Because of your diminutive size. Yes. My diminutive size. They all told me over and over again I was going to grow up and be a midget. Uh, mm -hmm. And so if you are a little boy watching and you're worried about your size, good news. Things change. Everything kind of balances out later right. on. Um, but what ended up happening for me was that by the time that I was 12 years old, I was someone who had been very experienced when it came to verbal and physical confrontation. Right. Um, by that time, I was somebody that, you know, anybody that did want to come after me was usually surprised because they wouldn't have been as experienced as I was. It wouldn't right. have, you know, I was somebody that you did not want to underestimate by that <laughs> age. Because <laughs> you, you learn. You either... Um, you either give in and kind of retreat inwards right. and let people do what they want, or you learn to kind of stand up for yourself and, and tell people where to go. Right. So when I hit t uh, the teenage years and peer pressure arrived on the scene, it was something that I recognized instantly uh, of, of someone coming to me and trying to get me to do something that was for the benefit of their agenda, not for any benefit for me. Right. I knew that immediately. So when people came up to me and wanted me to start smoking cigarettes, or drinking beer, or doing drugs, I was already preconditioned to kind of tell them where to go take their hat. Right. And what was interesting was that started to happen with neckties. That people would, and I'm not talking about my parents, but that other adults would sort of look at me and just get annoyed uh, with the way I looked, that I wasn't respectable or something like that. Right. And when you come after a little kid who's been bullied all his life and you try to convince him to put a big piece of fabric around your neck that anybody can grab and choke, it's just right. not going to go down well. And so I, very early on, um, I mean, for me, I could assess uh, those things, whether it be smoking or drinking, and realize, you know, for me, I'm now immune. I don't really care right. what other people think. I've never drank. I've never smoked. But wearing a necktie became like that, in that right. I could see that it really bothered some people that I wouldn't wear one. Uh, in my case, I looked at it and thought, well, it's just it doesn't make me terribly comfortable. I'm not 
into it, so I'm simply not going to wear it. But right. it became an issue for a lot of people, and it still does. There are people who just think that you're not being respectable, you're being rude to uh, society as a whole. It's, it's something kind of strange and bizarre uh, like that. And I always felt that it was a healthy thing that I stood up to the various facets of peer pressure, and I felt, well, you know, I'm going to continue with that. And, and one of those things is just never wearing a necktie. It's a little odd compared to saying, I'm not going to do drugs. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, yeah. <laughs> not going to no, smoke I, cigarettes, but, you know. Uh, no, I get it, though. I, I mean, I understand that. It, 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 it was interesting for me because I've been tall, as I, as I explained. I, I, when I was about 13, one summer it just happened. You know, I, I leave school. I'm the same size as everybody else. And then when you go back at the end of the summer, I have to look down on everybody like this because they're, you know, they, I've grown so much. Um, and so I stood up a little bit that way. <laughs> and I was a little awkward. I was very awkward, in fact, for, as, as a teen in my middle years there, my middle teens. But um, the wearing the ties for me came a little bit later because I, I got uh, large, I got tall, but I still looked young. And so for me, doing a lot of the things that I wanted to do, to be taken seriously, I had to sort of dress up. There's a reason why I wear my hair like this because 20, oh, more than that, I don't even know how long, 30 years ago, um, this guy that I really respected said to me, you know what, you look like a 14-year-old with your hair and do something with your hair, Do figure it out. And so I didn't really know what to do, so I did this. And then all of a sudden I looked a little older and that helped. And then, um, you know, wearing a tie seemed to help, you know, kind of, jazz it up a little bit now you know i've grown into whatever it is that uh, my age you know uh but now for you know tv and the and the work that i do there uh people have become used to seeing me wearing a tie and you know it's it's one of the things i do so now what i do is i wear outrageous ties i wear kind of wild very flamboyant kind of ties and now that's kind of become my thing so for me uh the ties started off kind of as a maybe sort of the opposite of what you were trying to do, I think, and and, uh, and and now have simply become kind of a trademark and kind of like a bit of fun. I don't wear one every single day, but when I'm appearing in public, I hosted a thing last night at the, the Tiff Bell Lightbox, and I threw on a suit and put on a wild tie, and when I got home, there were a load of tweets about, hey, you know, good job interviewing Christoph Beck, the composer, loved your tie, and there was, you know, they're all like sort of, the, the ties and the socks and things that I have kind of <laughs> grown into and, be, and become a little bit more flamboyant with have uh, become trademarks. Yeah, and I mean, you know, in, in my case, I, I could see, you know, what other people were doing with ties. I mean, it's a strange thing because you don't really have it with other forms of clothing. If you were to stand up and say, I won't wear brown socks, yeah. nobody cares. If you yeah. said, I won't wear suspenders or a bow tie, nobody cares. But there is a very small percentage of our society, it's a carryover from, say, the 1940s or the 1950s, right. who it's almost... Uh, you know, it, it, I don't know if it's tied into a religious value system or something like that, but there, there really is this odd thing where it's like, hey, you know, uh, young men should wear ties. But I, I've noticed that some people kind of approach it in a different way. There, there were punk bands, uh, the Edwardian Teddy Boys, yeah, the Sky yeah. Guys, the Blues Brothers that would wear a tie, but they wore it defiantly. They would wear it so it was too thin, or they wore yeah. it so that it was kind of, well, you know, I, rebellious I, in that I time. did that. I mean, that's when I was first started wearing ties. I wore really thin, uh, like rockabilly yeah. ties, and and in a sort of because my music was uh, punk bands, and then so you know you wore you went to secondhand stores uh, when we were you know younger, and you know you'd buy old suit jackets from the uh, you know fifties and sixties, I guess probably you'd wear those and like thin ties and or painted ties with crazy things on them, and so I wasn't you know I, I never really wore ties that like my dad and I would never share our ties. But what I did find uh, interesting is that years and years ago, when I would uh, bartend and or wait uh, on tables working in restaurants, um, if uh, there was one restaurant in particular that I worked in that uh, you the, the dress code was was fairly lax for for the the waiters, you could kind of dress as long as you looked respectable. You could wear pretty much whatever you wanted, and I always wore black pants, white shirt, and a tie. And the ties were often wild, but um, the, the shirts came straight out of the dry cleaner every single shift that I worked, and the, I always wore a tie. And uh, whereas, you know, in the summer in Toronto, when it's 32 degrees out and it's boiling hot, uh, you know, my, my workmates would come wearing shorts and, you know, T-shirts, and they looked fine. 
but um, I looked different from them, and I got treated differently by customers. And I really found that I got treated more respectfully. I made more money uh, as a waiter than some of my, my compatriots who weren't dressed the same way. And I think it's because customers just had this kind of innate idea that I was, uh, um, you know, somehow being more respectful to them because I had taken the time to wear a press shirt and throw on a tie. Right. Well, I think it, it can, in a professional sense, indicate a level of care or right. awareness about what you're doing. Uh, there's definitely that. And I'm not against ties. Like, sometimes people get it the wrong way. They think right. that I hate ties or I don't like people who wear ties. No, it has nothing to do with the world around me. It's just I myself. It's something I, you know, looked at when I'm not comfortable with those things. I'm not going to yeah. wear it. My only problem is when you have someone who comes in and becomes overbearing and sort of is going at you because they feel that this is their mission. They're going to correct you in some way. Yeah. Um, with things like alcohol or cigarettes, I've had people lock me in a room, close the, uh, lock the door, and put a bottle of beer in front of me yeah. and say, you're not leaving till you drink that. Um, and I've had to kind of look at them and say, well, you don't know my background because I'm not drinking this beer. You're probably yeah. going to end up wearing it unless you let me out. Yeah. But I've had that experience where people have sort of said, I don't trust people who don't drink, and I don't trust people who don't wear a tie. And you kind of, I've always felt it's healthy that I stand up to those things right. and say, look, you know, uh, we need to kind of find other ways to define our working relationships and our trust beyond whether or not I'm wearing a piece of fabric or, or whether I, I drink or not. I think that's an unhealthy part of our society. We need to kind of, you know, fix it. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. There's a, a great line in a a movie called Smashed, which is out right now. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Aaron Paul, who's on Breaking Bad, play a young couple who bond over the bottle. They are they are alcoholics, and she decides to get sober. The wife, they're, they're a married couple. She decides to get sober, and he doesn't. And so they go visit her mother, who she hasn't seen for a very long time. And uh, it turns out, of course, that you know her mother's an alcoholic as well, and and so the first thing they arrive first thing in the morning, and the first thing the mother does is make bloody marys for everybody, and the the daughter says, "Well, I'm I'm here to tell you that I don't drink anymore. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to drink this. Thank you, but I'm not going to drink it." And the mother says, "Well, where I come from, no means yes. Am I right? Am I right?" And it's, it's this incredible scene of this uh, kind of woman trying to enable her own daughter to drink if she doesn't want to drink by herself and she can't understand why her daughter won't drink. And I think the subtext is that the idea is that her daughter, by not drinking, is somehow judging her. Right. Uh, by saying, I'm better than you because I don't, I, I don't rely on this anymore. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great movie. It's 82 minutes. It's not nearly as depressing as it sounds. It's quite <laughs> funny by times. The performances are terrific. It's good stuff. Yeah, but it's I, a very interesting comment on that. And, and I think that you're accurate there in that some people take it as you're trying to be judgmental of them, and I've always had to say, no, 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 it's nothing like that. I just Not judging. You know, it's, yeah. it's not me. And I, I love people that wear ties. I hang out with them. I love the style. You know, yeah. um, I, that kind of thing. I mean, what's interesting is that it became something in the world of tech which I did not expect. And right. sometimes you think that your experience in life is kind of unique, and then you find out, no, it's more generational. Uh, right. So, for example, um, many of the tech companies out in California will not wear suits and ties. Right. And it just became this thing that it was more about trying to create a culture that was more free and creative. But there was a, a classic story where Steve Jobs at Apple was set to have a meeting with the executives at Sony. And um, his people were talking to their people, and they're trying to arrange this meeting. And the Sony people said to the gang at Apple, uh, you know, it would be a good idea if somebody could get Steve Jobs to wear a tie. <laughs> and the response that came back from the Apple people was, we're Apple, we don't even wear, we don't even own ties. Yeah, like it's yeah. just that kind of a thing. Uh, and I, I think, you know, it gets to be a little much if people are sort of trying to make it about something that everybody should do. No, this is all about individuality. Yep. You should wear what makes you comfortable. Uh, we have a mutual friend, Lindsay Van Stone, will yep. not wear pants, only wears dresses. And I know. And, and, well, I, I, and I find it so, because I, I saw her wearing pants the other day. She wore pants into work, did and, she? It, and it was all anybody was talking about. Yeah. It was such an interesting thing. Like it just, and, and, and it you know, defined me, because I know uh, that the earlier, that picture we showed of me in the wizard costume, um, the day that I wore that up to the station, uh, well, I didn't wear that up to the station. It was, it was at the station. I came in. Uh, but, you know, normally when I show up there, 
um, I'm pretty much ready to go. I said I get some makeup done and I go and I'm wearing a suit, my hair is done. But that day I showed up wearing jeans and a, and a shirt, my no gel in my hair because I was going to be wearing that hat. And it kind of blew people's minds a little bit as I was walking around the station because for eight or nine years they've only ever seen me as one thing, you know. And then I walk through uh, looking more like I would look on a regular day just kicking around here. And it was uh, there was a lot of conversation about it. Well, I think it's, it, you know, the concern, um, what you wear helps define your identity. And I think right. your identity should be a reflection of you. You shouldn't try to conform with what everybody else wants. Uh, we're in an industry where they keep bringing in people who will give you makeovers and stylists. I find the advice that those people offer tend to be the same for every person that they talk to. If uh, blonde highlights are in season, every person they consult, you need to get uh, blonde highlights or, you know, that kind well, of thing. I will never forget on a show that I used to do years ago called Real to Real, they brought in a stylist. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, my thing was just was like, you know, that's kind of where the television identity that I now have came from, the hair and the glasses and the suits and everything. And uh, they brought in the stylist who just clearly had no idea about the personalities of the people that they were working with. No. And well, so uh, the, the, the clothes, they, they I remember going in, there were racks of clothes that had been chosen for me and my co-host. And going through them, and, and uh, for my show, there wasn't a suit in my thing. And he was like, we're going to make you young and hip. And I said, well, at this point, I, I, I am young for what I was then. You know, I'm young. I was a young guy. And uh, and that's not what I do. That's a, we we were. I was very specific about it. And he had shiny pants. I remember these black shiny pants that I was supposed to wear. And I was like, you know what? This has so nothing to do with me. So nothing to do with me and the and and the look and the feel of the show or anything. This was something that you know the stylist had seen in a magazine and thought was cool and decided to bring it. And it was unacceptable. And I uh, ended up not wearing any of it because I was just kind of horrified by the whole thing. No, good for you. And and there's shiny so many people. Pants. <laughs> shiny pants. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Romano DeAndre, who I worked years ago on a couple of shows, including, um, oh, oh, anyways, uh, Style by Jury and a couple of places right. like that for the Fashion Network. He always said that what you want to do is you want to come up with clothing that uh, embellishes your existing personality, that makes you right. more of who you are, right. rather than you get somebody that comes in and just says, hey, you know, you know. Yeah. Uh, Sweater vests are in this season. You should wear a sweater vest. No. Yeah. No. Absolutely. That's and that's that's how what I've lived by in terms of and you know I, I have to be honest. This is the longest I've probably ever talked about the style that I bring to what I do. I, it's not something I think about a great deal, but I know what I like. I'm very kind of specific about what I like, mm -hmm. and I know how to do. Uh, I know how to do the things that make uh, that enforce the brand that I have created on television. I know how to reinforce that. And I don't spend a great deal of time doing it, but I'm specific about it when I do it. Right. Um, what I try to, to tap into, I mean, I don't have a specific look like you do, is I try to tap into what I think is sort of happening with, with geeks these days. Right. Uh, and there's this great quote from Simon Pegg here. Uh, where did it go? It just left me. Ah, here we are. Mm-hmm. Being a geek is about being honest um, about what you enjoy and not being afraid to demonstrate that affection. Right. It means never having to play it cool about how much you like something. It's basically a license to proudly emote on something ch uh, at a ch somewhat childish level rather than behave like a supposed adult. Right. Being a geek is extremely liberating. And so that's the kind of philosophy that when I get dressed up and I, and I wear those kind of uh, T-shirts that sort of express that. That's what I'm aiming for. Or the, the right. episodes in which I do wear a costume like you yeah, did yeah. Uh, on Halloween, I'm trying to tap into what I think is something that's cultural and very important for this generation, but may not be appreciated by everybody, and certainly right. the older people that you and I tend to work for. And it's sort of a battle, but I think in the long run, it's something that holds up, hopefully. Right, right. Um, that may be it. That may be it. Eh? That may be it for a wrap. Uh, that may be it for our week of uh, Hey All You Zombies. Go to the website, heyallyouzombies.com. Have a poke around. There's lots of stuff. There's lots of things to look at over there. And uh, we uh, we come back once a week. We'll we come talk. back next week, and I guess we'll, we'll talk about who won the election. 
Well, talk about who won the election, I guess. I mean, by then, it'll be kind of old news. I mean, it's kind of, uh, you know, I, I think that people are just so excited to have this over with as well. Yeah. It's been a long campaign. Uh, they've, you know, there, there's been uh, just so many ads on time. I'm so sick of watching CNN, even, and seeing the ads. And I don't live in America, for one thing, and I don't live in a swing state. Jesus, if you live down there, uh, apparently the only ads on television are political ads. And it just and, and your phone is ringing constantly. With, oh, with the auto you know, robot. Yeah, man, I just I can't imagine. So I'm sure that people are just wanting it over with. So yeah. uh, we'll touch on it next week. If you're sick of the election, don't worry. We're not going to spend the whole show next week talking about it. No, I guess we've, and it's interesting because we've meet, meet a, reached a point of media saturation where our media content is now so much greater than it ever was before. And so, yeah. you know, it's easy to get bombarded by this kind of stuff. But I guess what I mean is we'll find out who won, the guy who wears the necktie or the guy who doesn't wear the necktie. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. All well, right. Thank you, thank you very much. Talk to you soon. All right. Cast a spell or something. Yeah, cast a spell and, and do the right thing. Get out there and go.